It's good to see so many faces here on Good Friday. Again, welcome to Friend of Sinners Church or Sister Church here in Milwaukee. We're thankful of having you guys here with us. And if you're visiting here, maybe uh, for the first or second time, or you kind of found your way in here, however that may have unfolded, we are glad that you're here uh, to consider the death of Christ and what that means for us uh, as his people. In our morning services at Christ Church Milwaukee over the last few months, we've been going through the book of Hebrews. It's this incredible book in the New Testament that really lays forth an idea that uh, is mentioned on occasion in other books of the New Testament, but really uh, is unique in that it, it focuses almost solely and entirely upon the death of Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for sin. That is one of the main primary ideas of the entire book, and that is what makes it unique in that way, that it has that kind of singular focus about Jesus' death on our behalf as a sacrifice for sin. And because that's true, that makes Hebrews a really great book to draw from for a service like this for Good Friday because this is what Good Friday is about. It's about the death of Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. If you are here today, you are a Christian, you may have had this experience, you know that uh, Good Friday is strange. The watching world considers this an anomaly, a mystery. Why would anyone call the death of their God the death of an innocent man in such a horrific way. Why would anyone call that good? And what strange and twisted and upside down world does that make any sense? Of course, the Christian response is that in a world where the death of Christ actually does achieve something, where it actually does accomplish something, something remarkable, something substantial, in the passage we're going to read here in just a moment, what we're going to see that that death accomplishes, what it achieves, that is remarkable, that is substantial, is nothing short than the forgiveness of sins. And that's what we're going to explore together here in our short time this evening. It's worth noting as well that as we think about this idea of Christ's death as a sacrifice for sin, we know that that took place on the cross. And yet the word cross only appears once in the whole book of Hebrews, as we've already said, that idea of atonement, of the death of one in the place of another, the shedding of blood that sins might be covered is found all throughout the book of Hebrews, including the passages that we've come to here this evening. So I want to read for us Hebrews 9. We're going to read verses 16 to 22. And to provide context, we'll talk about what's happening here in just a moment, just so that we kind of have a direction where we're going. We're really going to spend our time looking at verse 22 for the most part of our time in this passage. So I'm going to give you that heads up. Let me read for us Hebrews 9, beginning verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
This is the word of the Lord. Father, we do pray that you would meet us here, wherever we find ourselves. Whether we would consider ourselves to be of strong faith or weak faith or no faith. We ask that you would meet with us, reveal your Son, Jesus Christ, good and true, as the only worthy and faithful and appropriate sacrifice for sin. Help us to see that the great infinite value of that gift and what it means for us. We pray and ask it in His name. Amen. Just two simple things I want to do with the time we have here together tonight. I just want to talk about the cost of forgiveness and the benefits of forgiveness. Again, really focusing on verse 22 here. So we talk first about the, the cost of forgiveness. In this section here in Hebrews, it's within a larger section of the author describing the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it's easy to get lost in the weeds of that, particularly if you're not familiar with all the things that happened in that system and the way that it operated. It's easy to get lost in a lot of the rules and the regulations. And, and this is the context in which the author here is describing the, the ratification of God's law, the covenant, the old covenant, the way in which he used to do these kinds of things. That's what's being described here in these particular verses. And, and specifically, he's referencing Exodus chapter 24, where, where the covenant is ratified. It is agreed upon between God and his people. And this amazing event that's described here happens in Exodus 24. And the author of Hebrews is drawing from that. But at the end, as we, read, we said already in verse 22, he's wanting to make the connection about this idea of, of blood and the significance of that and the importance of that. You see, blood matters because the old covenant, the old system, a, a sacrifice had to be made for sin to be dealt with, for sin to be atoned. Blood had to be shed, and, and animals offered in place of a guilty party so that sin could be covered and atoned for. And God, for his part, was very clear on the form that this should take and the meaning that this should take. If you go and read Leviticus chapter 17, it's the Day of Atonement, that, that one important high holy day where the high priest went into the holiest of holy places and made a sacrifice on behalf of not only his sins, but the sins of all the people. And in relation to that chapter and that event, God in Leviticus 17.11 says this, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. Now maybe you're asking yourself, hey, why blood in the first place? Why do we need blood in the first place? I mean, isn't God God? Can't he just like kind of wave his forgiving magic wand over us and have everything be great and fine without the shedding of blood? Wouldn't that be a lot easier and a lot less messy? Why do we need blood to be shed and involved to further to be Forgiveness. And the answer is in the fact that sin is costly. Sin is expensive. Do you remember in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where Jesus, we just actually prayed this a few minutes ago, he refers to sin as debt. He's using monetary terms. He says, this is what is owed. Sin is a debt, and we, because of our sin, are indebted to God. And that debt has to be addressed. It has to be dealt with. And that debt that we have towards God can be dealt with in one of two ways. Either we could attempt to pay it off on our own, 
or it could be canceled and dealt with by another, particularly the one to whom we owe the debt. So sin is expensive. It is a debt that has to be dealt with. But here's the thing about sin and debt. Even if it's canceled, it still has to be absorbed by someone. And just like God doesn't wave a magic wand and have sin disappear, He doesn't have that debt disappear either. God is the one who absorbs it. When a debt is forgiven, the one who owes the debt is set free, but the one to whom the debt is owed takes the hit. They absorb that loss in and of themselves. It cannot be just simply ignored. This is the language the Apostle Paul uses in Colossians 2.14. We read this earlier in our service this evening. Paul makes the argument that God canceled our record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, as you hear that verse from Colossians, you may kind of in your mind imagine, uh, at least sometimes I do on occasion, like uh, a spreadsheet, right? An Excel spreadsheet that has all of your sins on it. All the things you've ever done in your life or will do in your life. And it's this, you know, however long it'll list, we won't go into details about that. But it's that little thing that, that gets nailed up there to the cross. But if that's the way we vision and think of that, we've missed the larger point because Paul doesn't say that it's a sheet of paper that's nailed to the cross. He says that record of debt is nailed to the cross. And so we have to ask, well, what is on the cross? The cross is carrying Jesus. And that means that Jesus actually becomes and embodies our debt. It's not just a debt sheet, spreadsheet that's nailed there. It's a man. It's the God-man who was nailed there. He becomes and takes on our debt for us in our place. Where does this idea of Jesus becoming our debt come from? The idea that he would take on our sin, take on our debt, where does that come from? It's not something that the Father just kind of cooked up the night before the cross. It's found all the way back in the Old Covenant and Old Testament system. The foundation for what we call regularly this idea of substitutionary atonement, it was laid all the way back in the first few books of the Bible, in Exodus and in Leviticus. It was where, again, this idea of the blood of an animal would be shed so that our own blood would not have to be shed. And in that system... You can understand how we might say, hey, that sounds like a pretty fair deal. Better, better it than me, right? Better it than me. But here's the problem. And it's actually quite a large problem. It's what the author of Hebrews tells us just a few verses later in chapter 10, verse 4. He writes, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And why is that? Because as the late author and pastor John Stott tells us, for a substitute to be effective, it must be an appropriate equivalent. Animal sacrifices could not atone for human beings because human beings are of much more value than any animal. We've been saying this in our morning services and we've been talking through Hebrews that what that means is that again and again, sacrifices would have had to be offered again Again, over and over and over, wouldn't it be tremendous if there was a sacrifice made that dealt with this once and for all? 
and that is what we see will come to the cross. So where does that leave us? Well, simply put, if sin is to be forgiven, then blood has to be shed. Here's the thing. Because sin is costly, because it is a debt, because blood has to be shed, blood is the only payment that God accepts. He doesn't accept cash or check or Bitcoin. He doesn't work or trade in any other currency. Only the precious, infinitely valuable blood of his son is what he will work with and trade in. And here's the beauty of the gospel. It, it didn't cost us anything. It cost him everything. It cost us nothing to receive it, but it cost him everything to give it. You see, there's nothing that we can exchange for our forgiveness because sin is so massively, terribly horrific and treacherous and treasonous against God. Because the debt incurred is so big, there is simply no other way for God to pay for it than to send his own perfect spotless lamb, his son, to cover our sin. It's without the shedding of blood. Fill that on even more. Without the shedding of Jesus' blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's the cost of forgiveness. But here's the good news as well. There is a tremendous benefit for those who will receive this gift, who will acknowledge this payment on their behalf. I want to spend a little bit of our time that we have left talking about the benefit of forgiveness. 17th century English poet and priest George Herbert, if you're familiar with that name, one of his poems called The Agony, he wrote these words and describing this connection between God's bloodshed and our benefit. He wrote, Love is that liquor, sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. Love that line. And here is the uh, amazingly obscene, if we may call it that, idea of the gospel. This idea of the great exchange. That God, the holy God of the universe, would give up everything for a stubborn, wayward, rebellious, stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked? Got that little confuser. You know what I'm saying. Stiff-necked people. He would give up everything. He would shed his own blood and let that be poured out for us. And that we, in return, gain everything. We gain forgiveness. We gain freedom. We gain peace. We gain joy. We gain life. We gain blessings beyond measure. The, the pastor Tim Keller has said before that at the end of the day, there really is only one viable argument against Christianity. We want to use that language. And arguments that are offered opposed to Christianity. It's not from science. It's not from philosophy. It's not from anything else. It's this idea that when you hear the gospel, you are immediately struck with this idea of grace and you say, it's too good to be true. It can't be. And we've all been taught that it's too good to be true. It's probably not true. But here's the reality. It's all true. And that's what makes it grace. 
That's what makes it good. This is the great exchange that has happened for us at the cross. Jesus has paid it all, and in return, we gain all. Here the Apostle Paul said, describing this scene of the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, God made him to be sin. There's that idea again of him actually becoming sin. God made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That, in a nutshell, is this great exchange. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But thanks be to God who has made a way through the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. The giving of his life for us. So that we might not perish, but live. So what do we do with this information? How do we kind of take this with us and get into inner recesses and cracks of who we are? There's a lot we could say. It's for many, many other sermons. Many, many other good books and sermons have already been written and preached about it. I would encourage you to go find some of those. But I do want to say this. I want to encourage you to not be squeamish. I can use that word about blood. Particularly the blood of Christ. But the scriptures say that, that we have to be well acquainted with it. It actually goes further and says we have to wash in it. I do like that image. But we have to bathe in it. And it goes further. It says we have to drink it. We have to take it into ourselves. And that's not the idea of some crazy nut job scholars or theologians somewhere. Jesus himself said this in John 6, unless you drink my blood, you have no life within you. And then he said this on the night that he was betrayed to his disciples. This, this cup that I'm handing to you is the cup of blessing for you. But for me, it's the cup of wrath. But it contains my blood. The blood of the new covenant poured out for you. For what? For the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The image is painted for us here in Hebrews 9. We made reference to it. It's found in Exodus 26, and it's this striking, startling image, right, of a people, God's people, literally being covered with blood, the blood of bulls and goats, as the covenant is ratified. And I want to close with another powerful image that many of you, I think, may be familiar with. I think it's one of the most probably powerful, sobering images in, in the history of our country. It was a picture taken on November 22nd, 1963. If you know your history and you know that date, of course, that is the date that John F. Kennedy is assassinated in Dallas, Texas. And the picture that I'm referring to is the picture that took place just a few hours after that. It's on Air Force One. And it's Lyndon B. Johnson, the vice president, being sworn in now to be the president. And right next to him is the recently now widowed and also now former first lady, Jacqueline Kennedy. And she's standing there in the exact same outfit that she had been wearing when her husband was shot right next to her. And in that scene, Lady Bird Johnson, who is Lyndon Johnson's wife, later on would reflect on what she saw. This is what she said. 
she was speaking of Jacqueline Kennedy, she said her, her hair was falling in her face. She was very composed. I looked at her. Miss Kennedy's dress was stained with blood. One leg almost entirely covered with it, and her, her right glove was caked. It was caked with blood. Her husband's blood. Somehow that was one of the most poignant sights. That immaculate woman, exquisitely dressed and caked in blood. It was said that uh, Jacqueline Kennedy refused to take off that outfit before the swearing in of Johnson because she said, I, I want them, them being whoever had done this, I want them to see what they've done to Jack. What an amazing, incredible picture. Isn't it? A, a bride covered in the blood of her husband. But, but no forgiveness there. Only sorrow, grief, sadness. But there's another picture that's painted for us in the scriptures of a, a strangely similar image. There's another bride exquisitely dressed in royal garments. But those garments covered in blood also. Believe it or not, the blood of, of her husband. It's the blood of her husband covering that bride. The book of Revelation says that is us, the church. And rather than the blood of our husband being a testament against those who took the life of our husband, that blood is a testament to the life that is given for us so that we might experience forgiveness so that we might experience grace, so that we might experience new life. We praise God through the shedding of Christ's blood on that Friday, that bloody Friday, that we, because of that now, can walk in and bask and revel in the full and free forgiveness of our sins that came at such a cost to Him. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we do pray. We consider such a scene as Calvary, the cross, the pouring out of blood, the shedding of blood. We remember and hold dear the fact that it is given for the forgiveness of sins. Would that be our story? Would that be what empowers us to live? more and more into you as we walk in the newness of life that your forgiveness gives. We pray in Christ's name.